right to your host of Down the Garden Path, Joanne Shaw and Matthew Dressing. Welcome everyone to Down the Garden Path, where we discuss down-to-earth tips and advice while doing our best to help you seasonally manage your garden and landscape. I'm Joanne Shaw, owner of Down to Earth Landscape Design, and with me is my co-host Matthew Dressing across Zoom once again. Hello, Matthew. Good evening, Joanne. Yes, messing up her cue from across Zoom. I didn't even see the cue. You are like totally waiting. So sorry. Oh, no, I totally zoned right out. You totally did. I was like, what's the name of that plan to get? The Latin name? Is it? And then I totally Hello, forgot. everybody. You are yes. wacky and wild and you never know what's going to happen. Show uh, down the garden path every Monday. That's right. I'm Matthew Dressing, owner of Natural Affinity Garden Design. And as landscape designers and gardeners, we believe it's important and possible to have great gardens which are sustainable and low maintenance. And we want to help you make it happen. That's right. And tonight marks, uh, well, it's a second episode. A continuation. A continuation, which which wasn't written for me, but anyway, (laughs) continuation of a new month here on uh, a new topic, which is we're doing a deep dive into colorful and resilient staples of the perennial garden. Um, So tonight we are going to talk about echinaceas, and rutabecchias, also known as coneflowers and black-eyed Susans, loosely. Uh, So yeah, so very popular. Um, Some are native, so we can definitely talk about that. Um, Pretty much every, I think, uh, depending on where you are in North America, I think almost everybody grows one or their neighbor grows one. Um, So yeah, so they are uh, I'm like excited to do a bit of a deep dive, a bit more of meadow type flower, right? Versus um, something as cultured as uh, uh, the salvias and speedwells that we talked about last week. Yeah, that's right. Um, Native to the Plains uh, region of North America, just uh, slightly to the west, or a good portion from the west from where we are. Yeah, the purple cone flower uh, is probably the best and the most known one. It's also uh, our native and one of the ones that's used for breeding and producing a lot of the popular colorful cultivars uh, that we see today. And that one by Botanical, as you probably already have guessed and all know, Echinacea purpurea is our uh, native mm-hmm. one. Purple coneflower, hedge coneflower, uh, purple rutabecchia, as it once was called back in the day, funny enough. Really? As now, isn't um, pale, sorry to interrupt you, pale coneflower the like are in the like Ontario native one yes very true yes and that's okay. echinacea palata there yeah, you so go pale pale cone flower so the mm-hmm. echinacea purpurea big bright cone broad cone uh with very flat erect uh, semi-erect uh petals emanating outwards at about 90 degrees or, or vertically uh, and then the palata has that same cone so usually sometimes slightly smaller but then it's very thinner petals that tend to weep down so mm. they're they're kind of droopy as mm-hmm. well yeah and popular uh, many people would think medicinal like think of the the herb 
um, that you can buy uh, echinacea for cold, like it's the same plant, right? For cold and flu symptoms, often in your health food stores. Uh, yeah, so it's interesting that, you know, I think people don't realize like ginkgo is that ginkgo tree. It's the same ginkgo that you can buy, ginkgo biloba, and same with echinacea. That's right. Yeah, that's right. But we don't want anybody eating their plants in their garden, right? <laughs> yes. If you'd like to use them for herbal uses, definitely, uh, you know, look them up, uh, mm-hmm. learn how to properly get the, the herbal benefits out of them. Consult your uh, family practitioner, your your doctor before okay. ingesting any of these interesting yes. plants. <laughs> we're all different biochemically. So, <laughs> yes. Indeed. Yeah, there's our disclaimer for everybody. But, uh, yeah, so I mean, I have a bit, I have to confess, I have a little bit of a love-hate relationship with them. Oh, what is your love-hate relationship? <laughs> well, I mean, I think they, when they're blooming, uh, they're good and they're beautiful. And I love in the fall when they do start to kind of wane a little bit. I love that the birds, you know, eat the seed pods and things like that. Um, they seed, they so they can be a little bit like you know, you can buy a clump, but then you have clumps other places, which is not Mm. my favorite thing. They are very easy to pull out though. So it's not like it's gout weed or something that's more aggressive. So I wouldn't say it's aggressive. It's just a little bit of a nuisance, which adds to my, so hate's like a strong word, but yeah. Yeah. So I think there's, you know, they're not a perfect plant, but that's okay. You know, not everybody's garden needs to be perfect. I think it's great that they, how much they give back, like, like I said, the birds and the butterflies and the bees, it really is a a plant that um, provides a lot in the garden. Don't you agree? Yeah, I agree. From those seed heads that you can leave from fall through the winter as a food source, those tall stems uh, that are hollow, which insects can kind of burrow into and hide if they need to. Mm-hmm. Uh, most certainly. Yeah. I'm definitely a habitat for, you know, birds and native insects alike yeah. for sure. And as far as the tell, like they are tall, I almost wish they weren't as tall, but it's not a tall plant that you need to stake or baby at all. Right. Like they do kind of stand on their own. They don't require a lot of water. They're not, you know, so they're not a high maintenance plant. I, I, which I think is a good thing too. Right. Most certainly. Yeah. So on average, their height is usually in the range with a couple exceptions, uh, about two to four feet tall. Um, the leaves are alternate, lower, uh, broad lanceolate, uh, and they are usually about four to eight inches long and dark green and held at a clump uh, on the ground anywhere from, again, that four to 12 inches in that nice mass. Um, and then you get those big flower stalks that come out. Uh, the heads are solitary, terminal, uh, raised with purple, sometimes white spreading uh, around the disc of the flower, around the edge of that cone. Um, yeah, so very upright, nothing you have to really stake, nice sturdy stems. They do have a mm-hmm. slight pubescence to them. So they have that rough kind of like, uh, I almost find it like sharp when you touch the Yeah, stem. yeah. It's like definitely almost like some of the weeds, right? Like the weeds that kind of have a, like a texture to the stem. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, they definitely are. So, yeah. So what do you think? Like, have, did, have you grown them? At, like Nana's garden was shady. So did you, were you able to grow them there? You know what? I wasn't able to grow them there, but I used to grow them when I lived in Toronto. Um, again, it was kind of on the northwest side. I had just Echinacea purpurea, possibly Magnus, uh, the cultivar Magnus, which is very close 
too. Uh, it's a variety of uh, Echinacea purpurea, where it has a little bit of that thicker stalk uh, to it. It's a little, just a little bit meatier, some bigger flowers, a little bit of a thicker stalk. Uh, but yeah, just like you said, um, you know, they made that clump, they would flower nicely, but then they would seed. I would always leave the seeds for the birds and the other insects, the stems, but every spring I'd get a few little here and there, yeah. depending on the garden, and pull them up. But outside of that, very easy, low maintenance. Mm -hmm. um, I had somewhat of um, a silty uh, soil, so I mixed in some organic matter there. It was very well drained when it was really, really hot. Um, even though, again, it's on the northwest. When the sun really hit it uh, for some of those longer days, I would see a little bit of flagging, some drooping, uh, just as she kind of was like, oh, it's hot. I move my water out of my leaves and wait. Um, but other than that, they always pop back up, a little bit of water, really easy, easy going. Okay, yeah. that's good. Yeah, so I'd love to know if our listeners have them in their garden, if they've ever, or they've thought about it. Uh, yeah, and I think they definitely have a place um, you know, I love to see them with ornamental grasses and just really more in, in a more of an informal setting. Uh, I have I did a design this year and I'm a little nervous about it where it's a little bit more formal. Um, and there was like a formal hedge, which I love my hedges. And then instead of shrubs in front of the hedge, I did, you know, the homeowner wanted uh, wanted um, something wildflower looking. So I chose like a seven or eight in a row of coneflowers. So you know, they are the other thing too, unlike our salvias and salvias that we talked about last week, like salvia has been blooming for a while now, right? So it's still going to be a little bit before the echinaceas or the coneflowers start to bloom. So, um, but yes, but yet they do have a more interesting uh, fall and, and uh, winter interest. So, um, so yeah, so I will hope uh, fully post some pictures of that. I did post some Instagram or did an Instagram story of my two salvias just to refer to last week's show. So if you want to hop on there and uh, if you missed our show last week, we did talk about our first uh, week of perennials, um, salvias and speedwells. So hop on to our Instagram account at down the garden path podcast um, and uh, you can check that story out there. Um, but yeah, um, and the other thing about coneflowers, so I'm jumping back to coneflowers now, is they, it's been in the last few years or several years that they are continuing to kind of hybridize, right, and make new variations and new colors and some successful and some not so successful. So what do you think? Well, you were talking about like stories and your like love-hate relationship with them earlier. And I keep thinking back in with the garden center. Um, what happens is every year we always have the, you know, new plants for the year. And, you know, what are the suppliers introducing? And we always got to the perennial section and it was always one of a few, but it was always like, and here are the new uh, echinaceas for the year. And it was always like 15 slides of just, here's another echinacea named this, but it's the same color as this one but it grows a little bit bigger. So it's one of those ones. It's a little shorter. Yeah, a little shorter. It's just like, oh, another echinacea. Oh, another hosta. Yeah. So that's my love-hate relationship with them. And now I totally forget your original question. No, uh, no. I mean, just what your experience is. I mean, do people do, like, I don't know if, if it's just a common thing or are people coming in the garden center looking for them? Yeah, and that kind of goes into Francis's question is, uh, hello, Matt and Joanne. Interesting. 
are these a popular plant? So yes, to answer both of your questions, they are one that often people do come in looking for, uh, and they're excited about a, a lot of the different colors. Um, so we're talking, or we mentioned so far, just the, you know, the Echinacea purpurea, that classic purple color, uh, but there are lots of different colors nowadays. They come in oranges and reds and whites and yellows and double yellows, uh, double oranges, and some of them are kind of just they're more specimeny, or I, you had a better word last week, but people do come in. And like you had said too, they don't bloom as long or right away early in the spring. They're usually about early to midsummer, depending on mm -hmm. which one you get. And then they're going to run through early to mid fall, depending on that cultivar. Uh, mm -hmm. So people do, and again, kind of, I find kind of like in the nursery, they like that long range of that blooming much like the, the hydrangeas in the nursery is where I was going with that. Once mm -hmm. you tell them it's like midsummer till fall or midfall, they're like, oh, that's really nice. How big is it? So we do get a lot of popularity out of the colors and the different, mm -hmm. uh, the different ones. And I think people are familiar, maybe less familiar with the name and more familiar with the flower. So I know when I, you know, back in the day when you can actually be at someone's kitchen table with your plant book, you and know, everyone would point to that in my book and say, oh, I like this one. You know, they didn't know what it was and they didn't know how it grew, but it still it looks like a nice flower. And it is kind of like, again, that meadowy and it's a nice color. It's like a pinky purple um, and it's an interesting plant. So. Um, so, yeah, so I often I do I do still put them in. I try to um, there's one called Kim's Knee High, which is actually hard to find, but it doesn't yes. get quite as tall. Um, so I usually spec that, but then I often can't deliver sometimes uh, installing. And I just remembered about Powell Wildberry. And that's a, uh, that one's actually, I should try that one too, because that's also um, not so high. It says 20 inches. So that's not too bad. Um, but, and I've seen that on the list. But uh, um, the, the thing about the purple one is it is a bit more of a longer living plant. You're, you are going to have that for a while. And in my experience of the funny, you know, orange ones or red ones, um, they really are not, um, I don't know if you want to treat them as an annual, um, certainly they're a perennial and they'll come back a couple years, but they really don't have the hardiness, right? Don't you agree? They really don't have the hardiness still, I found, to stick around for multiple years. Yeah, I find the fancy frillies like... Um... Uh, Pink Double Delight, the confection series where, so these doubles, you you get the regular, like the, the layer of petals around the cone. Uh, but then for those of you who don't know, the cone itself, instead of being spiky and colored, grows sets of petals within themselves as well. So you don't really see the cone. Yeah, I find that those types can be hit and miss. And like you said, they'll last two, three years. Uh, and then they can kind of, some of them die out or yeah. they just they just vanish or something weird goes with them. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, they don't have the longevity of like some of just the, like just the straight, you know, Magnus or Purpurea right. or, you know, mm -hmm. White Swan, the tried and tested white one. Yeah. Uh, the big white one. Yeah. Does, is the white one, I've never had the white one. Um, I don't tend to plant a lot of white perennials just because I always plant so many hydrangeas that gives everybody's garden enough white. Yeah. But how are, how do the white swans perform? Yeah, they're a pretty good performer. Yeah, they're a okay. little taller again, um, that that four feet or 120 centimeter kind of range. Uh, but they're nice. They just look like the, the white version of, of the normal cone flower. So okay. I've never seen anyone or heard anybody who has any issues. I've seen them in gardens um, quite a while. 
uh, like re returning to different botanic gardens and other uh, gardens around my neighborhood who have them and they seem to be all right. So yeah. I like, I like the white swan, but I agree with you with some of the weird, uh, you know, like the rainbow uh, Marcella. Uh, it's a, like a peachy yellowy one mm -hmm. there. It's cool. It's cute. Um, they'll give you some flowers, but again, like how long is that really lasting? Yes. Yes. And it's a little bit, but yeah. it's not as long. I know. And my son, when he was younger, well, he still does love mac and cheese. So there was one came out, it was an orange one and it was called mac and cheese. So I bought yes. that one. It didn't make it, you know, that, so you kind of get, they sucker you in with those really cool names too, right? Where you're like, oh, yes. well, this one's uh, this is such a cool name. I have to have this plant. And then it's like, eh. now I do have, it's funny because I have somehow, I do have a clump of purple. I think I sent you the picture because we were looking for graphic photos and I sent you this funny picture, which was not quality for a graphic photo. But so my purple one and I bought a red one and they kind of merged and the red ones are shorter and the purple ones are taller. But it, it just is a weird I have to figure out how to fix that. If the, if the red ones came come back this year, I kind of have to tease them out of each other and kind of separate them. So that was that was kind of an interesting they kind of migrated together because I know I didn't plant them that way. So, uh, so that's kind of interesting. And I do want to say describing. So if people don't know which we're talking about, for sure, check out the podcast and we'll have pictures. Um, but um, so if you picture a daisy, everybody knows what a daisy looks like. So the little petals all the way around the circle, but the center is more of a cone. So it's elevated. It's not flat like a daisy, right, Matt? So, so then the, the petals right. on the outside, in some cases kind of droop, some kind, some varieties, it's a little bit more, flat um but uh, that's kind of the standard and it's like a lavender purple color is the purple cone flower so um so yeah and i haven't seen any yellow ones it said that i'm just checking out once again the wonderful proven winner site and they do say that the yellow ones are hardy to zone four i have not had that experience and i don't know that there's a lot um available in yellow i don't know at the garden center do you know yeah the the most popular yellow one tends to be Cleopatra. Okay. Um, she's a smaller one. I think I, if I'm remembering correctly, um, about a foot and a half. So she's not like a big, big one, but a foot and a half to two feet. And that's the one that we see the most of hmm. uh, is Cleopatra. Okay. So, and she's just basically just a, a, like a thin petal, just classic echinacea, a little bit of orange in the cone, not okay. as pr a pronounced uh, pointed cone. It kind of comes up and then rounds and a little, is a little bit more flat and daisy-like. But um, yeah, Cleopatra, Cleo is often okay. who we get to see. All right. Well, I'll have to check that one out. Because um, I think often, which leads us why we put coneflower and black-eyed Susans together, because I think when somebody wants a yellow long-lasting flower, they tend to go to that, the rutabecchias and the black-eyed Susans and brown-eyed Susans, that variety, as opposed to the yellow, looking for a yellow coneflower. And I think some people kind of don't even realize that they're two different species. Would it be species? Is that the correct term? Yeah, genus and species. Yeah. Yes, yes. So, so yeah. So we'll talk about that in a few minutes. But Sharon has a really good question that cover that relates to all perennials. Um, she's saying, in gardening, what does the term "deadhead" mean? I hear it all the time, and I'm not sure what gardeners are referring to when they use that term. Thanks, Matt. Why don't you explain <gasps> that? Jumping in, yeah. So Sharon, deadheading is just basically the practice of removing the spent flowers from a tree, a shrub, often more shrubs and uh, perennials than a tree, 
uh, and no one's climbing all that way up. And it's just the idea that it's just going to tidy up the plant. Um, it can it cause uh, more flowers to grow. Uh, if you have things like salvias or veronicas, they can kind of break and create some new subflowers. A lot of different annuals uh, will do the same thing. And it's just basically diverting the energy from that plant creating a seed into more foliage or flowers at the time, depending on which one it is. So just redirecting that energy and tidying it up nicely. Mm-hmm. So we, I mean, even if you think of geraniums, like the annual, you That's know, often when the flowers, thing. yeah, when the flowers, everybody knows that, you know, you can tell when the flower's done, right? And the stem is kind of empty and the little color petals have fallen off. And then you have this odd looking stem there. So just, you would kind of cut that off or break that off and that would be kind of deadheading. So you're kind of taking the head off the dead stem and that helps it because right now the like you said the plant if you leave too many of those on then the plant is doing a lot of energy at creating seed heads there when if you deadhead them then they're putting in the energy to making more blooms right and that geranium the annual geranium or pelargonium Mm -hmm. is a great one um, if you've ever reached down that stem follow it into the heart of the plant you can feel there's a little elbow or a little bump when you get to the bottom and it snaps super easily right there and it's easy mm-hmm. to, to regenerate. So yeah, that's mm-hmm. a great, great example. Yeah. And if we go back to our salvias that we talked about last week, um, they bloom on like it's a flower stalk and they've got tiny, tiny, tiny little flowers. Um, you probably know the scientific word for all those little flowers all the way up. Um, but when they fade and they kind of dry up, if you do go to the base, kind of like the base of that, and you've got usually some leaves, um, and you cut there, same thing, then that encourages a second flush. So that plant will then start creating another stem that's going to be now full of flowers. So that would be, um, you know, plants that need deadheading. There are others like coneflowers, I don't think is one that really needs deadheading. I think they they kind of keep going and that's fine. But there are certainly um, like salvias, I think of, um, you know, um, even roses like hybrid teas, don't they need, you know, you need to take, you should take off the spent flowers to, to kind of think, keep things going. So there certainly are some perennials that benefit from deadheading and others that it doesn't really matter. That's right. Uh, Ari has written in, uh, it says, good evening. Are these plants expensive? Uh, they sound it. A good question, but often not. Um, What you'll see is some of the newer, exciting cultivars. Uh, There's few of them, and they're new on the market. They might be, depending on where you are, a couple dollars more than the ones that have been around for quite a while. But often, and again, I'm speaking Canadian dollars, uh, usually here for a one-gallon round or square pot, which is about six to eight inches wide, uh, usually closer to the eight-inch uh, with you're usually anywhere depending on from $9.99 up to uh, $17.99 or some of the fancier ones I've seen up to $24.99 mm-hmm. uh, but they're usually in the mid 10 bucks to 20 bucks range yeah uh, so yeah. they're not too expensive yeah the um, just looking at the proven winner site once again is they're saying the two that are new quote-unquote this year uh, new uh, garden centers this year are um, a color-coded variety, like that's, I guess, the brand. Um, and the price is white, is the white one. And <laughs> frankly, scarlet, which of course is a red one, ready orange. Uh, so it's saying that, so I don't even know if those are in Ontario garden centers yet. Usually there's sometimes a, a bit of a lapse between what Proven re- Winners releases and when we get them 
uh, grown in Ontario. So depending on where you are, but that's an example of, so those two might be a little pricier because they're new this year, um, probably less inventory of them. So that kind of thing. Uh, but definitely uh, there's a lot of other grape varieties that are going to be similar. Um, so I'm going to check out uh, Dawn at Gardens Plus for our local people and see, because she often has, she considers them one of her low maintenance, um, easy to grow uh, perennials. So, so yeah, so it's not, uh, not an expensive one. No, not an expensive one. And just as you had said, and we've said a little bit before Lenny's question, uh, I was thinking about planting cone flowers, but I heard that they were a type of flower that did, in fact, require a lot of maintenance. Mm. You are saying they do not, question mark. Thanks. And yeah, Lenny, just as we have said before, um, and even Dawn at uh, gardensplus.ca, uh, she's saying, yeah, they're one of her low maintenance staples. They're very drought tolerant once they get established. Uh, they don't really require any of that deadheading. We're going to leave those stems for the season. And they're quite readily available and a North American native. Um, I have never had, I would say, any like anything but a low maintenance experience uh, growing them myself as well as tending them in other gardens. Uh, and uh, you can't see it, but Joanne's shaking her head uh, in agreement <laughs> as she looks up. Uh, yes. Don's uh, little echinacea collection there. Yes. Yeah. So I don't know if our longtime listeners might remember Dawn has been from gardensplus.ca, her website, where she um, sells um, low care, low, low care? No. Easy care, low maintenance perennials, and she has 26 varieties of uh, coneflower. Uh, many are sold out. Uh, Cheyenne Spirit, um, mm. Double Cranberry Scoops. Oh, no, that one's sold out. Um, Orange You Awesome. These are some of the fun names. Uh, Powwow Wildberry. So, yeah, so some of those are still in stock. And you're right, Matt, the pricing goes from 8 to, you know, $20 approximately. Um, so, um, Gardens is a garden center just east of uh, Durham region um, and uh, it's worth a visit uh, to visit Dawn so shout out to Dawn at gardensplus.ca and um, you can check out her website she is no longer um, accepting orders over the website it looks like um, but she offers you a safe uh, person in-person shopping experience and uh, she definitely has some really you know she really wanted because she she's a small uh, independent grower so she wants easy things for her to take care of therefore they're easy for us to take care of so yeah that's right as we reach the bottom of the hour um, I think we're going to change gears here moving from Echinacea to Rudbeckia uh, Brett is just tuning in uh, and not sure that, or I guess he's not turning in, or they're turning in. I'm not sure I heard you correctly at the beginning of your show. You said these plants are edible or not, just curious. So we were saying, yeah, so the, the purple coneflower or the echinacea is the herbal echinacea uh, that you do see in health food stores or, or mixed in with herbal products. Uh, and then just again at the, the front of the show, we were saying, just, you know, make sure you, you know, consult your uh, family practitioner, your healthcare practitioner, uh, before just ingesting things, do a little bit of research on how to distill down the oils or dry them for teas or whatever you're looking mm -hmm. to, to use your herbs for. Yes. Yeah. So it was discovered by the native indigenous peoples um, as one of their most important medicines. And it is a popular immunity booster in herbal medicine today, but definitely, uh, you know, check it out at your uh, health food store. 
not in your garden. <laughs> so uh, definitely. And Dave is asking about roses. He said, when is the best time to plant rose bushes? Someone told me spring or fall, but not summer. Is that true? You know what? Um, I think it's more a cultural thing. If you can find them and you can plant them in the summer, sure. We do have a lot more, like the soil is much warmer. The days are much longer. The drought stress is up. You can do it in the summer, but they're higher maintenance to maintain and get established. Because we need to, they're not established, we need to give them those extra resources and that little bit of care. When we mm -hmm. get to spring and fall, you know, the sun is further south. The days are cooler. They're shorter. The, the groundwater is naturally higher. Uh, you know, water stays in the soil a little longer. So it's easier for those plants to be, you know, planted and cared for and just, you know, lower maintenance that way. Um, mm -hmm. So technically, Dave, you could plant them in summer, no problem. But I think culturally, we all like to go away for the summer and bask in the sun ourselves and relax <laughs> or sit by poolside. And those plants are saying, oh, what about me over here? Yeah. And we just don't give them the time that they need. So it's easier, just it's easier. Uh, and, you know, we're back to school during those spring and fall months. So we're around the house more, et cetera. So you can do it. I planted yeah. roses like I've cracked open the early permafrost just to quickly put in some for someone before uh, and they've made it through and that was like end of November beginning of December mm -hmm. but yes so I like yeah I mean I think you're still fine for June like certainly the hot the dog days of end of July and beginning of August are a little bit more stressful um, but I think I think if you if you you know it's one of those things especially since we're all home, uh, you know, if you're around planting it and going to the cottage for two weeks, nothing works that way. Right. So if you're home to keep an eye on it. Right. Um, and if you found one that you've been looking for and you want to buy it and plant it, then, then do it. Do it. Uh, you know, I, I, uh, I think, uh, it's, it's, you know, then do it. <laughs> so exactly. Yes, but yeah. So there's no like hard and fast rule that you absolutely cannot. No. Um, yeah. So um, and that goes for trees because a lot of people will say the same thing about trees. Oh, I'm not supposed to plant the tree. Well, when we're installing gardens and if every garden usually will have a tree in it. And if we're installing in July and August, then they're going to get a tree. We're going to plant it. And, you know, tree bags and extra water, the, you know, the homeowners given lots of uh, instructions. So, you know, we can't do, we can only have, there's only so much time. The problem with that is there's only so much time in spring and fall, right? Yep. So. Yes. Mm -hmm. So that brings us to the bottom of our hour here, um, and I'm looking at the totally wrong thing, uh, but thank you for joining us live here at Reality Radio 101. Uh, I'm Matthew Dressing here with my co-host Joanne Shaw, and you're listening to Down the Garden Path. Joanne and I enjoy hosting Down the Garden Path each week, bringing you interesting and relevant topics to help you achieve a great garden. We learn right along with you from our research and from the guests that join us here on the show. Don't forget to spend more time with us down the garden path. You can find us on your favorite podcast providers. And while you're there, please subscribe to be notified of new content, like, share, and leave us a comment. We love to hear uh, where you guys are listening from. Don't forget, you can also find us off the air. Uh, Joanne, you can be found at down the number two earth uh, .ca and myself at naturalaffinity.ca. So shall we jump into our rutabagias? Sure, let's do that. And I often get here these guys also called 
um, even on some of the plant labels from some of our suppliers, also cone flowers, and sometimes also corn flowers, um, which I've always known more to be like the Centauria uh, genus, things that hold like the bachelor's buttons uh, and other ones like that. So these guys are a little bit more um, daisy-like if we use that daisy analogy. So we've got again, some vertically held petals, slightly weeping. These guys are going to be in a nice range of golds, uh, oranges. Sometimes they're bicolored with rusty burgundies, rust colors. But the most classic one we probably all see uh, is just Rudebeckia hirta. Um, and it's just the black-eyed Susan, the yellow ox-eye daisy, English bulls, uh, bullseye, uh, and that gloriosa daisy group. Um, so yeah, so these guys uh, are usually about two to three feet tall, uh, erect, round, growing habits. They bloom from summer into fall. You've probably all seen the big drifts of bright gold. Uh, flowers with all the little black eyes in the center, getting its black-eyed uh, Susan name from itself. Um, and then, yeah, um, that's, yeah, again, um, that's probably about it. Should I go into more detail? <laughs> no, I'm trying to find it in my book, so oh. I don't know why I can't find it. Um, yes, here kind of thing. Uh, also native, did you say that? No, I didn't. I did not go into that as well. Rud. Okay. So it's rud. I'm like, I'm like, are you, are you, oh, anyway, so it's rud a bit, yeah, like how it's spelled. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So you often hear Rudbeckia or Rebeckia or Rudbeckia, but it is R-U-D-B-E-C-K-I-A. And yes, there are some of, uh, some nat native um, varieties as well uh, that you can find. These guys come in a range of heights and widths. Usually you're seeing them, some of the dwarf varieties like the gold star, uh, just over a foot tall, um, you know, that 14 to 16 inches. Uh, one of my favorite ones um, uh, isn't a here 10, I'm going to forget its total species, uh, but there are some that grow up to seven to eight feet tall uh, with big, beautiful, broad green palmate leaves. Uh, it's more of like a green cone flower. The eye is is uh, very small, but like a, uh, up, a protruding through the center of the petals at the center of the flower and uh, having little yellow droopy ones. But Herbert Stone, I think, is the cultivar name uh, as well from that green cone flower. Uh, so there's a great range. And then you see the probably the most popular one you'll find on your garden center benches is Gold Strum. Mm -hmm. uh, and she's going to grow two feet by two feet blooming mid-summer through mid-fall, a little bit, maybe a little bit bigger uh, with the masses of flowers growing that classic yellow flower, great for attracting butterflies and used as drought tolerant and uh, cut flowers as well. Yes, and uh, I've come introduced to Little Gold Star this year, mm -hmm. um, which is about 16 inches by 16 inches, so a little shorter, um, but uh, yeah, I mean, and I think they also will tolerate some shade. I don't think people realize that they will grow with less sun. They certainly, like many things, are happier with full sun, but they will grow um, in dappled shade. Um, you know, they are quite hardy. A little bit of reseeding, so similar to mm -hmm. the, the echinacea, the coneflower, where 
they definitely, it's not like they jump and they spread, you know, elsewhere, at least in my experience. Um, but they will kind of get, you'll get more and more of them. And one of the funny things is if often people have both in the garden and I find when they're just coming up in the spring, it's really hard to tell which is which, right? Their leaves, coneflower and echinacea are very similar. Um, so sometimes it's a little hard um, to tell, but, uh, but yeah, so they are definitely one of those like go-to low maintenance you know, aside from the having to pick out the reseeding, it doesn't need staking, it doesn't need a ton of water, it doesn't need particularly good soil. I mean, I think those are the two benefits and why we kind of classify these two plants together is for people who really want low maintenance and plant it and forget about it. Um, and the long season, uh, you definitely get your bang for your buck when it comes to those two plants. Agreed, agreed. The long bloom time, easy, low maintenance, um, yeah, they are great versatile staples uh, in a lot of different gardens. Do you do you use um, Goldstrom often in your design? Do you I use do a lot of rutabagas. Not. Um, I, as I've mentioned on the show before, don't really like yellow flowers. I don't know. It's just me. But there is a place. So I make I punish my clients by not giving them any yellow flowers. But no, no, I'm just <laughs> kidding. Um, but no, no. If there is, if it's the right look and of the right setting, because um, it is. Uh, but I also feel because it's kind of common. I just feel like, you know, I don't know how to say it, but you know, you want something different. Like if all yes. their neighbors have rutabecchia, then me, but they're designed them paying me to put in something that their neighbors put in. Right. I I'd rather put in something a little bit more unusual, which is making me think I should really look more closely at these yellow cone flowers, which is a bit different. So, yeah. So I feel like it's, you know, as much as it is a, a standby plant, um, it's just not unique enough for me. I don't know. I don't know what it is, but um, yeah. I don't know. So I do, I have used them. I just read that same garden because she did want wildflowers um, in a different spot. Um, like I did, uh, I was mentioning, I did a hedge, my U hedge that I love, um, bordered that with, you know, six or seven uh, canasia plants. And then in other areas around some rocks, I think it looks nice, like kind of groupings around large rocks. I think it just yeah. gives it that meadow kind of look. Um, and I ended up getting the little gold, gold star. So I'm looking forward to seeing how those turn out. So, yeah. I feel the same way as you. I, I kind of have like a theme or an idea, kind of that woodlandy meadow kind of picture in my head <laughs> of it. Definitely being a native. And again, there's so long blooming and everybody wants one. Um, it, it is one of those ones that tend to everybody have. So I like to have a spot specifically that I can show it off. Uh, or can stand out. And I like your idea, like right around the rocks or in an unusual spot or an unusual combination with something very meadowy. Uh, yeah, like or like it. Carl Forrester grasses, or, like they both yeah. cornflower and, and rutabecchia look great with those. Exactly. Um, I would like, because a lot of my clients really, really, really want low maintenance. Like they don't want to, you know, do much. And as much as these are perfect from the watering and the soil and the fertilizing, that low maintenance part of it, I feel like the seeding part is a bit because they are so new gardeners, many of them that to know to pick out and know that that's a weed or often they get weeded out of gardens because people do think yes. they're weeds. So that is one other common thing, especially for um, new gardeners. When they are coming up in the spring, they do look weedy. 
the leaves and just the texture. It looks very similar to some of the other common leaved weeds. So they are often weeded out of gardens by accident. In fact, for many years, <laughs> I I do have someone that helps me with my garden and I've planted them and it, they never seem to come back. And I could never figure out why until <laughs> I was there when she did the spring cleanup and she was, she thought they were weeds. So, you know, when you do it really early spring, you can't really tell. So, um, so yeah, so th that is another reason why I don't use them a ton. I get uh, that, for that very reason. I get that that same experience. Yeah. And even mm -hmm. in the garden center, they come in and what's this growing over here? And yes. it's one of them that is self-seeded and they're just, they're very almost weedy looking when they're just a few leaves, especially self-seeded. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, definitely. So, so yeah, that is, uh, you know, again, they do have an upside in that they, you know, don't need babying, don't need staking. So it's, it's, uh, it's a love hate thing for sure. That's for sure. Oh, um, Amy has asked us if we have websites. So hopefully she just caught your little intro. So um, uh, hello, Amy. Thank you for asking. Um, we do uh, down the garden or down to earth. The number two dot CA is mine. And Matt is at naturalaffinity.ca. That's right. That's, That's right. right. A few other listener questions are, are rolling in. Um, we've got, uh, oh, oh, oops, if I click on the right screen, James has written in, hi from Buffalo, New York tonight, enjoying the show here on my deck in between the rain showers, uh, lucky you, uh, plant on. We could definitely use the rain. Um, we had, oh, there goes Amy's again. Hello from Atlantic City, New Jersey. Uh, you guys rock, love the advice. That's from Ralph. Thank you, Ralph. Oh, thank you. And Ken, I want to give a oh. shout out to, well, I'm going to interrupt you for a second. I want to give Go. a shout out to Sharika. Um, she is a new listener and she's been listening to all our podcasts while she works at a garden center near DC, really enjoying the discussions. And she, so she's signed on and joined our Facebook group and, uh, and asked some advice in there, which I gave her some advice. And she's going to keep us posted on how that goes. So for our listeners who want to learn more and kind of interact us with us between week, between shows, um, check out Down the Garden Path podcast on Facebook. Um, we'll let you into the group and uh, we can uh, answer any of your questions. So um, hopefully when she's listening to the show, whenever she, however she caught up she is, uh, she can, uh, you know, I wanted to give her a shout out. So I think that's great. A great way to work while listening to a podcast. Matt, you got to try that. <laughs> <laughs> if only I got to walk around with the earbuds in. Or I, in know, I know, sure. exactly. And she said, posted some pictures of her garden center and it was beautiful. So, yes, uh, so was. that was nice to see. Yeah, well, you saw the photo as well. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, the listeners, you guys have been great. And uh, I hope you're enjoying us chatting about perennials because they are kind of the workhorse of the garden, aren't they? Yeah, yes, they are. Speaking of workhorses in garden, Ken is looking for some perennial selections. Uh, he says, hi, I have a lot of shade in my backyard. And I was just wondering if there are any annuals or perennials uh, that would do well in a shady yard, which is most of the day. Thanks. Mm, okay. Do we have any, I mean, when I think of, of shade, I think uh, annuals, I think begonias, I think um, 
Impatience, which have had the downy mildew recently. Uh, but there are a lot of new ones. And I just saw a brand new one that's supposedly a little bit more downy mildew resistant. And I'm totally blanking on the name, uh, Ken. But yeah, uh, usually, you know, Browalias, uh, Begonias, um, Callas, um, not Cannas, Callas. Uh, what did I say? Impatience, Terrenias, the uh, wishbone flowers are really cute. Um, Those are purple, right? Little purple ones? Uh, they can be purple, blue, white, and yellow. Oh, yeah. okay. And okay. then they have like a little throat uh, and they call them wishbone because if you look, the, the stamens inside are joined and kissed together right in the center. And they actually look like a little turkey wishbone. Oh, so it's cute. Okay. And as they age, they snap. Yes. And um, for perennials, I really, so perennials and shade, I find um, it's often more about foliage than flowers necessary, you know, but Tiarella, um, right? Tiarella yeah. is a spring flowering uh, plant as well as uh, I use Brennera and Lungwort that both have really interesting. So they have beautiful uh, periwinkle blue flowers in the spring, but then have a different shape, the two plants. So Brennera has kind of bigger heart-shaped leaves that are kind of silver and green and, and mottled and very interesting. So even when it's not flowering, it still looks like an interesting plant. Um, and lungwort has long, narrow leaves, but they're kind of spotted green with spotted silver spots on them. Um, so those are really interesting ones. Columbine actually um, grows uh, another native plant. It'll kind of reseed, but um, not invasively. And it's, it's quite a pretty flower. Um, hostas, of course. Um, yeah. Um, snake root, snake root, astilbe, some astilbes. Um, and bugbane or snake root uh, gets mm -hmm. a bit of a burgundy foliage. So that's nice in the shade to have something that's burgundy with a white spike. Definitely. Yeah. 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 So, so hopefully that helps that you out. Helps Ken. you. Hopefully we didn't say it too quickly, but I'll try to have these in the show notes for you. Yeah. Perfect. And I'm just thinking I'm catching up here. Uh, Gloria has also written in. Hi there. I'm a new listener to your radio show from Orillia, Ontario. So you are close by. Uh, several of my garden friends tune into your show every week and they said that you folks give out great advice and tips. Very nice. Uh, you now have a new fan. Thank you. Uh... Well, thank you, Gloria. Thank you for tuning in and joining us here down the garden path. Uh, we really appreciate it and say thank you to your friends as well, as I'm sure they're listening. So thank you, everyone, uh, mm -hmm. for spreading the word and joining us here uh, every Monday night on Reality Radio 101. Reminds me, we need to do a giveaway. We've got these podcast t-shirts to give away. So we're going to have to talk about that. So see how we can have a little contest with all these say, listeners. Mm -hmm. I have to talk about something and pick a night where they can all tune in and we can have some giveaway stuff. Because I think I've got some stuff we can throw in a little gardening grab bag uh, yeah. of stuff. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. So, uh, so thank you. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, a couple more questions as we reach to the end. Um, we've got Brian has written in. Uh, I when I hello tonight when I plant my any of my annuals or perennials, how deep do I plant? Uh, I have heard all different advice and tips on this. What is the right way to do so? And the right way to do so is always matching the soil level in the pot with the soil level in the ground. The plant, the crown of the plant, that point where soil becomes that uh, air and that stem enters the soil, that's the crown. Uh, and if you start to bury that on a lot of things, uh, what you'll do is you'll basically uh, smother that area uh, and it can cause a rot 
and basically you can topple your annuals, your fleshy annuals. If you bury the tree too deep, you can get that rot on into that bark and cause other issues. So whenever you're planting brine, uh, you always want to plant soil level is even in the pot, becomes even a new level to your one in, in the ground. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so And that goes like, for shrubs as well as even anything. trees. You want, you know, they're the, the people who planted them in the, in those pots are the experts. So that is how they need to be planted in the garden, you know, because uh, the tree, you know, you take the tree out of the pot, you need to see the flare. It doesn't mean you put it in a gigantic five foot hole and bury this trunk, you know, um, and that's no different. And I know that's a little bit more of an obvious example, but it's the same for perennials. So really, um, you know, perennials might be a little bit more forgiving, but for the most part, uh, unnecessary, um, don't make the pot too big, but also don't, I'm bad for this where I'm like a bit of a lazy gardener and don't, so I have, I can say right now, there's a few perennials in my garden that are not planted deep enough. And that's, you know, crowns are kind of like I did at the last minute when I was rushing and didn't get it down deep enough. Um, and sometimes when you're planting around a lot of tree roots, that can be definitely an issue you know, the exact perfect spot where you want that perennial to go. Unfortunately, there's a big tree root there. So, um, so yeah, so that, uh, that, uh, so hopefully that helps. So yes, definitely everybody, oops, as I hit my microphone, sorry, uh, plant the same level in the pot. Yes, exactly. And even, even when you're transplanting things into new pots, if you've got house plants, etc., uh, things like that as well. Um, where else? We are at 10, 7 of 51. Um, oh, I think I've got one more question here. Uh, B&Bs. Uh, Tammy writes in, uh, can you please tell me what are the best plants to grow mm. to attract bees and butterflies? Uh, thank Accent. you very much for your answer. B&B, oh. go jump for it. No, I'm going to say the four plants that we've talked about so far, right, in our, in our perennial month. Um, salvias, speedwells, echinacea, and rutabecchia, right? right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, black-eyed Susans, blanket flowers, um, you know, your Asclepius, your butterfly weeds, Joe Pye weeds, different phloxes, yarrows, uh, butterfly bushes, lilacs, uh, lots of different things and different um, trees and shrubs available, especially in your... Um, wherever you are, Tammy, uh, take a look at some of your native shrubs too, because there are a lot of native and local bee species that are beyond just like the, the honeybee uh, that we're all racing to protect. There's hundreds of species of native bees and ground bees and solitary bees that will take advantage of all sorts of different things at different times of the year. But mm-hmm. I'm thinking also catmints. Yes, um, you read my mind. I was just going to say my the biggest... <laughs> Uh, one in my garden is, uh, is, is uh, definitely the nepeta, the cat mint. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think of bee balm as well. And clue is in the name. Uh, and I think sometimes things that early bloomers, so even bulbs. Uh, so definitely, Tammy, think of spring. And we've covered this when we've done a bulb segment that some of the early crocuses, mm. um, you know, those are the, some of the early flowers really do are really important to, to bees um, from that standpoint, because they're the first ones to bloom, to provide them that early food. And then sometimes the late ones. So things like goldenrod 
and um, a Japanese anemone that are blooming in kind of September, October, obedient plant, things like that. So sometimes it's easy. There's lots for the bees to choose and butterflies and everybody to choose from, you know, from June to August. But it's, I think, think things that are going to kind of extend the season. And I think that will get you a, a real local, um, you know, diversity and, and really help the, uh, the plants and both shrubs and trees. Uh, that type of thing to kind of think on the outs the edges of the of our season. Um, goldenrod is often mistaken as ragweed and as yeah. thought as uh, as a weed and as a as something that people are allergic to. That's not the case. There's some really cool um, uh, goldenrod plants. Again, yellow. So I never put them in my designs, <laughs> but uh, zigzag. I think of you know that kind of thing. So um, yarrow is another one. Yeah. Um, you know. Yeah, that's another great one as well. Um, All those plants. I don't know why. <laughs> I always love seeing in the nursery um, the pyrus, the pyrus japonica blooming early. There are little clusters of little bell flowers and the mason bees love just swarming around it. You almost think that something's wrong with it. There's so many mason bees early because they look like the flies with their silvery blue. So, yes, yes. Um, and I've seen some people posting on social media too about the nine barks. The flowers on the nine bark are actually uh, really big pollinators. And I have not noticed that in my own garden. Um, I actually started looking because my my uh, summer summer wine one is blooming. And I was kind of, every time I walk by, I'm kind of looking for bees. But uh, um, yeah, so that's good. So sh that's kind of a shrub thing, but definitely perennials. Um, hopefully we gave you some uh, good ones to think about. Yes. Um, I think as we round out the last four to five minutes, uh, our closing question from Dawn uh, says, hello, excellent show this evening. When I purchase plants, can I plant them with the container that they came in? Uh, some of the containers I know are plastic, but I read online somewhere that they are uh, the plastic that plants come in is biodegradable uh, that have holes in them for the roots of the plant. So I am not sure if this is advisable or not. Can we ever plant plants with a pot that is with uh, that comes with the purchase? Thank you very much for your answer, Dawn. I don't know of any pots that are plastic that are biodegradable fast enough uh, that will do it. And you, everything to a point is biodegradable. They all will return in a time but the keyword there you want is something that's compostable that will be eaten away and disintegrate and, and go out so there's that difference between compostable and biodegradable overall don usually there's some herbs i know our herb supplier in ontario has a very hard shelled biodegradable pot it does still take a year or two i always recommend just to take it off uh, but unless you have something like a quar pot that's very porous uh, and will break down very quickly that is compostable, uh, I would not. I would always remove them from the plant and always make sure you tease those roots out uh, so they're not spinning in a circle and they eventually girdle themselves uh, and just spread them, let them spread out and do their thing. Uh, when you plant things in pots as well, you end up with the canopy covering the pot and you never end up watering them. Uh, and then you get these issues and overall it's just, it, no. We want them to be right in the ground. Uh, so yeah, good question. Um, you're not the only one who's been asking that question. I have fielded that question many times uh, this year with, with COVID. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, and I... 
I do you think because the plastic that the waste that the garden you know industry creates is mm. I mean that's why they did start a number of years ago they started the recycling program so many nurseries uh, or garden centers will take the plastic pots back uh, for recycling and reuse uh, that type of thing but I, I think we must be on the way to something like that where it is more of a environmentally friendly box uh, or product. Um, I know this, when you start seeds on your own, you can start them in those kind of peat pots, but I think yeah. those really dry out. So they don't really work right in a commercial like retail setting. Yeah. They really dry out quickly or they're very fragile, right? They're fragile and they end up when they sit in the water after being watered, the mm. water doesn't dry super quick. So they really like decompose quickly. So then you go oh. moving the pots and the whole bottom just falls out. Right. Or you grab right. the lip and it shears in three pieces. So okay. they're not really, yeah. But, and that's where the quar was coming in, the cocoa husk um, to break down. It was breathable, but it still was fibrous enough and strong enough. But there hasn't been the full conversion over to mm. that at all. So. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you everybody for all your questions tonight about, um, about rutabekias and black-eyed Susans and perennials in general. We did, as we mentioned in last week's show, we did do uh, a, a whole month of perennials in our 2020 season. So please, um, we have an intro to perennials, peonies, ground covers, ornamental grasses, and attracting beneficial insects. Um, which, you know, goes to talking about our butterflies and bees and then uh, shade beyond the hosta, some shade plants. So those are some great shows that um, would cover some of the questions we were asked tonight. So please look for them on your favorite podcast app uh, or on our websites. Uh, once again, uh, down to earth, the number two dot CA and Matt is at natural affinity dot CA. And thank you, everyone, again, for joining us here Monday night on Reality Radio 101. Thank you, Francis, Dave, Lenny, Sharon, Ari, Lenny, uh, Brett, Kyle, Brian, Tammy, Gloria, Don, Ralph, Amy, James, and Ken uh, for sending in your questions. Thank you for letting us feel the love. Yeah. Uh, and thank you, everyone, for tuning in here uh, to Down the Garden Path here on Reality Radio Oh, wait, Joanne's waving. She I'm like waving my hat. Well, what are we talking about next week? Let's tell everybody. Oh. Do we know what we're talking about next week? Next week, we are talking fabulous foliage. Uh, so it's all about the cool, uh, interesting perennial foliage plants. So everything Excellent. beyond the flowers. Okay, there you go. <laughs> we'll Thanks, see you next everybody. week. <laughs> Bye. Thank you for listening to Down the Garden Path with your host, Joanne Shaw and Matthew Dressing, right here on Reality Radio 101.